This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Listener supported WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Ina Garten is not only a household name, she is beloved. With the help of her Food Network program, Barefoot Contessa, not to mention all those viral videos... Garten has 14 million cookbooks in print. 14 million. Her success doesn't really come, though, from pioneering recipes or being in the foodie avant-garde. It's got more to do with being a confiding, authentic, warm personality that tells you that you, too, can make coq au vin or a roast tenderloin, anything. Just follow the recipe. You can do it. Ina's approach to food is classic and accessible. And her latest book, Go To Dinners, is a bestseller as usual. Now, my wife and I have known Einer and her husband, Jeffrey Garten, the economist and chief Ina appreciator, for a good while now, and I can tell you, hand to heart, that the person you see on TV is the same one you get in person. Funny, unpretentious, a smart businesswoman, and a master of every variety of chicken known to the history of heated poultry. She's the real deal. Now, I have to start out by telling you the last time I had a famous cook on the show, I, I may have told you this, it was Jacques Pepin. And on the radio, with my laptop in the kitchen, I made crepes with him. And it, wow. With, exactly, with my wife, Esther, laughing at me in the, in the corner of the kitchen. So we're not going <laughs> to cook. <laughs> we're just going to talk. <laughs> we're not cooking. Okay. We'll cook in person. How's that? Exactly. I'd love to do that. <laughs> now, Nothing worse than having your wife laughing at you. <laughs> it's a daily... Your very, very smart wife laughing <laughs> at you. It's an, an hourly occurrence. <laughs> now, you write in the preface to this book, early in the book, you said that when you were growing up, you had dreaded dinner time. Why was it dreaded? Was the food so terrible? What was your... I, I, was it your mom that was making dinner? My mother was making dinner. Mm-hmm. My father was a uh, ear surgeon, and um, my mother was very. I think now I might say that she would be diagnosed with Asperger's. Mm. Didn't have relationships, and she had no interest in food. So she would get dinner on the table, but there was no joy in it. What was dinner and on the table? What was it? I had broiled chicken, canned peas, um, 
I, what would I say? There was she was a dietitian by training mm-hmm. and didn't believe in carbohydrates, so we never had bread or potatoes or polenta or anything absolutely delicious. I mean, we didn't even have frozen vegetables. We had canned vegetables. I particularly remember Harvard beets, one of my least favorite things <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and no child likes Harvard beets. You might develop a flavor for it, a taste for it afterwards, but not when you're 10. And, and it sounds like dinner was not a joyful time. It wasn't a joyful time. And my parents, my, particularly my father, was very stern taskmaster and would grill us about whatever was in school. He would criticize us. So when dinner was over, I had a nice knot in my stomach. And they would always want me to eat faster. So they would say, every time your brother takes a bite, you take a bite. Oh, my God. And I'd be like, oh, I just can't. When is the first time you picked up a frying pan in earnest? It, it, not, it wasn't just when you got married later on. It 100% was when I got married. I was never allowed in the kitchen. So my mother never taught me how to do anything. And she, I mean, she didn't see any joy in it. She felt that my job was to study and it was her job to make dinner. And, and I think she wasn't comfortable with me being in the same room with her. So she would always say, you go study. And so I was in my room my, my whole childhood. And I think I was pretty lonely. I think that that's why now cooking for friends and Jeffrey and doing the show, Be My Guest, where I'm, I'm connecting with people, is so satisfying. In other words, you like to cook with people around, not by, by, oh, by your lonesome in the kitchen. I prefer to cook by myself. You do? And I do. Cooking's hard for me. I mean, I do it a lot, but it's really hard. And I just love having the, the space to concentrate on what I'm doing so I make sure it comes out well. Cooking's hard. I mean, when you go to the butcher and you order a chicken, it's a different size every time. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of chicken. Um, I mean, you know, some chickens, they're allowed to add water to it. You have no idea what you're going to get. So it's, um, I mean, just the simplest thing is chicken can be complicated. I do find it hard. I really, um, I'm not confident that it's going to come out well. And (laughs) I have to say, I'm surprised when it does. I think. Do you remember the? Maybe I have high standards. Do you remember the first time you made a dinner in earnest for you and Jeffrey? Well, probably as soon as we got married, because it wasn't like we we had the money to go out for dinner. So um, when when we were engaged before we got married, I remember going out and buying Craig Claiborne's um, the New York Times cookbook, Mm -hmm. and I went to what was it called? It's a store like I think it was called Caldor, Mm -hmm. and I bought entire set of kitchen equipment. And um, I just was really excited about being able to cook. But I remember within the first month, I made a challah. And I remember thinking, that's what you're going to start with? (laughs) (laughs) But I did. I just, I really love things that challenge me that I think I can't do. And then make them and can and show myself that I can do them. I get the feeling, and this is far from your first book. You've had many books before this. But Go To Dinners is a book in a way, made for Ina Garten back then. In other words, these are, in some ways, the least intimidating recipes you could imagine. You're, you're almost telling the reader, you, you know, darling, I know you think you can't do anything, but even you can do this. It actually does come full circle, doesn't it? Because once I've learned how to cook, and then, of course, I got Mastering the Art of French Cooking, both volumes, and worked my way through those. So I learned the French techniques um, from Julia Child, um, and, and 
I really believe in simplifying things. But what happened in the pandemic is we were also completely stressed. We didn't know what we could do, what we couldn't do. Um, I was making a recipe every day for Instagram so people could figure out what to do with those white beans that they had in their <laughs> pantry. 3,000 pounds wor- of white beans. <laughs> Re- exactly. So many white beans and whatever they had. I was making recipes for, for my cookbook, for, for this book. And I was cooking lunch and dinner for Jeffrey and me every single day. And by sometime around May or June, I was like in bed with the covers up over my head. And I thought, I really need to simplify. So it is true that I came full circle, but for a different reason. Now, I've admitted this to you before, (laughs) but I'm now admitting it to everybody who's listening. To relax, I don't cook. I watch cooking videos. I watch you. I watch Jacques Pepin. I watch this Szechuan guy who has who's going three hundred miles an hour, making incredible food. But I can't cook. Hold my hand and tell me what I need to know initially. If I'm having four people over, six people, whatever it is, what do I need to know? And what do I not need to be nervous about? And what would you recommend I start with? I think there's one thing everybody should know how to do, which is a roast chicken. Mm-hmm. And I do it in all different forms. I do it with um, potatoes and fennel. I do it th- in this book, I have a, a, a spring roast chicken or a roast chicken with spring vegetables, with things like asparagus. You can put almost any kind of vegetable in a roasting pan and a chicken on top of it and put it in the oven. It's the easiest thing in the world, and the only thing you have to do is make sure you don't overcook the chicken. People get really nervous. So you think this is the easiest thing? This is the point of entry? Any kind of roast chicken, or the chicken um, in a pot, which is just as easy as can be. You put it in a big pot with chicken stock and vegetables, and then you you add um, saffron to give it a little heat, and then orzo, and you've got a whole dinner all in one pot. Now, I I have to ask you, I'm I'm lucky enough to know Jeffrey, but I think for most people who watch (laughs) you, um, they see Jeffrey at the end of your show, and... And he'll be saying something like, this is the best soup I've ever had, or this chicken's unbelievable, <laughs> or something like that. And you, and you think to yourself, he can't possibly be this nice and this brilliant at the same time. He's, he's just so appreciative. And I think it's one of the reasons why I love to cook. Because if you cook for somebody who doesn't appreciate it, there's, there's no satisfaction in it. I made him, <laughs> one day I made him a cup of tea, and he said, oh this is the best tea I've ever had. And I was like, Jeffrey, it's a cup of hot water and a tea bag. <laughs> it was a particularly good tea, but I mean, still, he just, he, nothing goes by him. He really appreciates it, which I love. Now, you ran a store, you owned a store from ni- 1978 to 1996, a long time, the Barefoot Contessa. And why did that hit the way it hit out in the Hamptons? It was, it was an incredible success. Um, you know, I, I thought of it as, as a party. Hmm. I wanted, when you walked in the door, I wanted all of your senses engaged. I wanted you to smell something wonderful. I wanted you to see a wonderful display of produce, or I wanted to hear great music, but it was old-fashioned, like Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, or what, you know, whatever was um, fun to listen to. There were samples of things all over the store, so you could taste things. Um, and people would just come in just because it was fun. And I thought, if they're going to come because it's fun, they'll always come when, uh, when they're hungry. Mm. And I, th- I think that's what worked. It wasn't really about the food. It was about the, the feeling of being in the store. It, it seems impossible to imagine, but there was a time, Ina, that you were not 
<laughs> that you were not as famous <laughs> as you are now. You started publishing these cookbooks and you were hesitant about doing a television show. I mean, you got offers, I think, more than once before you, before you decided to go forward with it. What, what was your hesitation? I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I didn't think anybody would want to watch me cook on TV, actually. Um, Food Network kindly made me an offer, and I kept saying no, and they kept coming back. And um, there was someone, someone there, Eileen Opetut, who just kept saying, um, make me a better offer. And I kept saying to her, no, I just don't want to do this. And she just kept coming back. And finally, I had heard about a show that somebody said was a cook, really good cooking show. And it was Nigella Lawson's show. Right. And unbeknownst to me, they went to London, found her producer, <laughs> told me that she, they were coming to East Hampton like in two weeks. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I, I said I wasn't going to do this. And, um, and Eileen said, just, just do you know, 13 shows, thinking like, that, how hard could that be? <laughs> and, um, and they arrived in, on my doorstep. And I thought, okay, let's see what we can do. And you know, one of the things I think about in life is you got to jump in the pond. Right. You you um, you say no to things without really understanding. Like I said, no to Instagram before I understood what it was, and I kept saying no about TV. I was just like, I love writing cookbooks. I want to keep doing that, and um, I can't imagine being on TV. It, it it always seemed to me that the the most successful ones. Oh, there was some character involved. No, the Ju Julia Child was a big character she had personality traits that you could, we could easily list Graham yeah. Kerr did all kinds of people who've done it how do you how are, do you think about that in terms of the personality you put out there because I have to say being lucky enough to know you it seems like one and the same person I, I am I am the same person you see on TV I found a coach who would teach me how to be on TV. And I have no idea why I knew this, but after one session with her, I thought, that's just awful. That nothing she said made sense to me. And I thought, I just need to be myself on TV. Right. It's the only thing that works. And I don't know why I knew that. I just knew it. I have to say, though, I'm watching you cook, and you, there's a move that you do. All of a sudden, a stick and a half of butter goes into the pan, and you look up. <laughs> both with mischief in your eyes and a little guiltily and say, yeah, but it makes a lot of brownies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is, 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 do you know what? Go ahead. Do you know what I believe? I think we should eat real food. Mm -hmm. And, and if it's delicious, you'll eat, you'll, it's worth cooking for. I, my favorite expression is, um, if you eat low fat, a low-fat diet, it's not that you live longer. It just seems longer. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> now, we have, we have some questions sent by email to you. This comes from Julie Wilson and Maureen Tipping in Comer, Northern Ireland. And this question is from wow. my neighbor Maureen and me, Julie. We're tuning in from Comer, which is a small village just outside of Belfast. During COVID, our neighborhood came together into a really lovely, supportive, and fun community. We went from being neighbors to being friends. This Christmas, we would like to co-host a party for our street. Our village is famous for potatoes, so we're really keen to know if Ina has any ideas on how to transform the humble spud into a delicious party food hors d'oeuvre. A potato hors d'oeuvre is interesting. And keep in mind, you're giving, you're giving potato tips to Ireland. That's, that's a tall Exactly. <laughs> that's really daunting. Yes. You know what I would do is I'd make potato latkes. I think that would be great. Wow. 
And you have you have a great recipe for that, I should say. I do, and um, and they and what you can do is you can prepare them in advance, put them on a sheet pan, and reheat them in the oven, warm them in the oven. Sounds delish. From is that a-, a good one? From Alex Lewin in Berkeley, California. Dear Ms. Garten, about ten years ago, I read a short story in Harper's about which I remember nothing—not the title, the author, or the plot—except <laughs> for a scene in which a character fishes a bay leaf out of a bowl of soup and flicks it away, and he tells his dining companion, bay leaves are BS. Ever since then, I've been nagged by the question, are bay leaves BS? Whenever I put them in anything, I can't tell what effect they have. Am I using them wrong? Also, is it true that they should be kept in the freezer? Okay, uh- I really don't know the answer to this, and I will say that I always also wonder whether a bay leaf makes a difference. And that there are a couple of things that I use bay leaves in, um, and I've always wanted to make them without the bay leaves to see if it made a difference, and I never have. So I, I'm not sure. Uh, this is. Can I just say this is called making news? Ina Garten calls bullshit on bay leaves. I'm, I'm, I'm with that. <laughs> now, these are questions from New Yorker Instagram. What to make for two people? while still making it feel like a holiday and a special meal. This is from Teresa Nobri. Um, you know what's really great is um, uh, roast pork loins because they're very small and you can marinate them and roast them really simply, serve them with like a potato and apple and fennel puree and some shaved Brussels sprouts. It'd be a great holiday meal. And it's not like cooking a whole ham. I, and I, have, I have a very important question to ask. When did Brussels sprouts go from being, as in my childhood, disgusting to in... I happen to know. Into my adulthood, it's like, I can't wait to get more Brussels sprouts. What happened? What happened was, and I actually started this at the store in the 80s. Yeah. I started roasting Brussels sprouts instead of boiling them. And they were so good because they're like crispy and they're, you they're, know, they're more like French fries. They, they're fantastic. So then I started, thought, well, if you can roast Brussels sprouts, maybe you can roast butternut squash. So we started roasting butternut squash and string beans. And I mean, we roasted everything. And the, the best part is it's the easiest thing in the world. You put whatever vegetable it is on a sheet pan, olive oil, salt and pepper and into the oven. So on asparagus and, too, you're pro roasting rather than, than steaming or boiling. A hundred percent. I think it brings out the flavor, it caramelizes the sugars in it, and it's much more delicious. Now, here's a fantastic question from someone named Hampton's Video. I don't think that's the name, but here we go. Do you ever use a microwave? I do. (laughs) Um, I use it for every day, actually, to make oatmeal in the morning. It's a perfect thing to do. I'll use it if I'm going to melt butter. Um, I'll use it to prep things. Um, I mean, not a lot. It's not like I'm cooking in there. But um, every morning I use it for my oatmeal. Good Irish oatmeal. Perfect. Now, this is not exactly a food question. How many scarves do you own? You always have one on. (laughs) Sue Palmer. A lot. (laughs) I have drawers and drawers of scarves. (laughs) She's absolutely right. (laughs) I have them everywhere. (laughs) I just love having a scarf around my neck. I just think it feels good. Uh, David, I was just thinking to myself, can we just do this again tomorrow? We can do, uh, we can do it all so day. so much fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you. Ina Garten, thank you so much. So much fun to talk to you, as always, David. Thank you. Ina Garten's most recent book is called Go To Dinners, and her latest show, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, is in its second season. 
Oh, and one note from the fact-checking department to Alex Lewin, who asked about bay leaves. The short story you read in Harper's was by Lori Moore, and it's called Subject to Search in 2014. The offending bay leaf was in a dish of couscous, but the fact-checker did not settle the crucial question of whether or not bay leaves are BS. Thanks for writing in, Alex. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you are not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. As the year comes to an end, we've been hearing each week from the writer Susan Orlean, and selections from her obit column, Afterward. Now, one thing about Susan, she's kind of an animal nut. In fact, her last book was a collection called simply On Animals. And she has that in common with her subject today, a Texas man named Eugene DeLeon. Rattlesnakes give most people the creeps. But there is a subset of people who find them inviting. Eugene de Leon was frequently photographed cozying up with and even smooching rattlesnakes. He had no fear of them at all. His interests started early. His father, a security guard in the Texas oil fields, used to while away his shift catching snakes that wriggled by his post and would bring them home for his children to admire. The passion for snakes stuck with De Leon. He was crazy for them, 
his daughter Blanca Trevino told me recently. Very crazy. After studying at Coastal Bend College, De Leon, who worked in the oil fields like his father, founded Snakebusters Snake Handlers, an all-purpose snake enterprise. Snakes in your basement? No problem. Call Snakebusters. Need snake blood for a folk remedy for cancer? Snakebusters can accommodate. The brushy fields around De Leon's home in Freer, Texas, are prime rattler territory. The snakes found their way onto playgrounds and into shopping centers and living rooms all the time. De Leon, who was also a volunteer firefighter and civic-minded in every way, liked that he was doing something helpful in town. Trevino, his daughter, said that she would have been happy to kiss those snakes goodbye. But as soon as De Leon's son, Eugene Jr., was old enough, he joined Snakebusters too, marking the start of a third generation of De Leon snake fans. De Leon's wife, Simona, however, was not an enthusiast of the whole venomous reptile thing. During the past few years, she had pressed him to hang it up, but he couldn't be budged. The capstone of every year for the Snake Busters was the Freer Rattlesnake Roundup, a three-day slithering creature festival held each spring. The Roundup includes exhibitions and a pageant and competition to be named the year's Rattlesnake Royalty. De Leon was in his glory there, demonstrating his rattlers and selling snakeskin doodads and rattlesnake meat. It really does taste like chicken, Trevino said. If you cook it right, it's delicious. It might surprise you to know that, as terrifying as rattlesnakes are, only a small number of people are killed by them each year. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the United States, between seven and 8,000 people are bitten annually by venomous snakes. But on average, there are only five fatalities. Among the unlucky ones when it comes to venomous snakes are researchers who must handle them frequently and get bitten more than once. Historically, Quite a few rattlesnake victims have been members of Christian sects who believe that holding a snake in your bare hands is called for in the Bible, specifically Mark chapter 16, verse 18. It's considered a demonstration of religious faith, and if they are bitten, they count on divine intervention rather than medical help. The practice has killed or injured so many people that it is now illegal in several states. On occasion, someone will sit on a rattlesnake hidden in the brush or surprise one in a pumpkin patch and not get medical treatment quickly enough. Usually, though, rattlesnakes have a live-and-let-live attitude and are far more likely to wriggle away from humans than to hunt them down and kill them. But being a snake buster required a lot of face time with rattlers, and the risk was consequently amplified. 
Four years ago, at the Rattlesnake Roundup, Eugene Jr. was bitten and ended up having to have a thumb amputated. De Leon himself had also been bitten in the past. In recent years, De Leon began to mull over whether he ought to retire or at least cut back a bit. But when his wife Simona died last year, he was crushed. And according to Trevino, keeping busy with the snakes was what kept him alive. According to his sister Monica, though, De Leon had decided that perhaps this year's rattlesnake roundup would be his last. It would be his 20th appearance, so maybe the fact that it was a round number made it seem fitting. Everything was going as planned, until one of his demonstrations. No one is quite sure what happened, but the large rattler he was holding squirmed out of his hands and repeatedly bit him on the shoulder and back. He was helicoptered to Corpus Christi for intensive care, but he succumbed to the bites. Trevino believes that he wouldn't hold a grudge against the snake, and that if he had to do it again, even knowing the risks, he'd still be handling them. Wherever he is now, she said, he's doing the same thing. Susan Orlean, her essay, A Man Who Loved Rattlesnakes, comes from her column, Afterward. You can find it at newyorker.com. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for listening today. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen and Putubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, and Max Bolton. And we had assistance from Mike Kutchman, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 